this Friday. Your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley. It's anger. Let me at him. Fear. Safety checklist is complete. Disgust. Ew, ew. Ugh. Sadness is in the house. Oh, no. Hello, I'm anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going. Ready PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only theaters Friday. Get tickets now. This is the Book Riot Podcast, a weekly news and talk show about what's new, cool, and worth talking about in the world of books and reading. This is episode 148, and we are recording on Friday, March 11th. I'm Amanda Nelson, and I'm here with Jeff O'Neill, and we are coming to you from bookriot.com. Howdy. Hello. It's Mar- It's my birthday today. What? Oh, you didn't tell me that. I saved it for the show. That's what all Happy good hosts birthday. do. Yeah, that's, that's why I'm eating. I'm in my childhood home. I'm eating my childhood donuts, drinking my childhood coffee. No, no, that no, wasn't childhood Hold coffee. Hold up. <laughs> uh, 38 years young today. Nice. You know, it's one of those things. Cause for How do you feel? I feel about the same, you know, <laughs> about, the, about the same as 37 plus 364. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, you know, I'm back in Kansas. The weather's beautiful here. Um, I'm sorry that my, this is, I'm sitting literally in the squeakiest chair that's ever <laughs> been made. Like I have to hold perfectly still or it makes this horrible, like, cracking noise i don't know what's going on so if anyone of you of any of you listening hear that that's what's going on and amanda's in a weird place she's in shinsky's desk well I'm not in, in it house. yeah <laughs> not in the desk like curled up in the I'm drawer or something the desk yeah yeah um, well she's out of town and we were just saying that um court. well if has any, if any of you know if we were just we were debating when they shot lord of the rings and they shot those hobbit the hobbiton the hobbit holes do you know, does anyone know if they were shot to look like regular people or hobbits or are they actually hobbit size? So you can email us at podcast at bookriot.com if you know the answer to that because we were just debating how you would have done that. Now, I know a lot of it is camera tricks and stuff mm-hmm. um, with how they did it, but I don't actually know. And I think I may even heard that they did two sets or like two sets of interiors so that in one of them, Ian McKellen looks huge like is actually huge for him mm-hmm. and then when they have to get like a they got like a dude that's like seven and a half feet tall to put on the gray robes and like wander <laughs> around so like i don't know i'm all very interested in this because it's it's all old camera tricks and i'm also a little bit loopy um so now i'm talking about this for much longer than we should be um but here we are back you know another busy week in the news actually an insanely right. busy week in yes. the news. Um, but before we get that we better do our first sponsor our first one I'm very excited to have this burn baby burn um, the newest book from Meg Medina, um, who is a friend of the show, friend of the site. She was on Reading Lives. Um, a y- she's a YA writer. And um, here's here's the story. So Nora Lopez is the main character. She's 17 during the infamous New York blackout of 1977. That's also the summer of Sam. The serial killer, son of Sam, shoots young woman on the streets. So New York's having a tough time. Nora's family <laughs> life isn't going well. So either she's got a bullying brother her mom is, you know, falling behind on the rent and her father only is like happy birthday and Christmas and oh, you guys, the other 363, uh, you're on your own. All she wants to do is turn 18, get out on her own. There's a new guy They started working where she is, but everything's so crazy that, you know, you're not going to stay out too late. So she's trying to figure out in this tumultuous summer, um, the family drama, a coming of age story, a young romance, again, the backdrop of a dangerous sort of 
historical moment in New York City, a lot of cultural detail, a lot of history detail. That's Burn Baby Burn by Meg Medina. Highly recommend um, you check that one out if it sounds interesting to you. All right, thanks so much to them for sponsoring the show. It's um, We've got a cornucopia of rantiness, uh, yeah. I'm afraid, <laughs> coming your way. Um, but before we before we do that, I, I, the 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 story that'll probably be most remembered this week. Um, sadly, it's been a tough year for 2016, and authors Pat Conroy died this week. Um, best known for Prince of Tides, um, and he had had a short bout with pancreatic cancer. As sad to say, um, a lot of bouts with pancreatic cancer tend to be one of the more deadly you can get. Um, not one of my authors, but on the Book Riot back channels, a lot of expressions of grief about this one. I, yeah, I, I, was I wouldn't surprised. have expected that. Are you a Pat Canroy? Have you read any of that? I've not read any of his. Um, let's um, see. What's work. the. There's a The Great Santini. Is that the Pat Conroy, I believe, as well? Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, which was turned into a movie. Um, so yeah, one of our contributors wrote a really nice. Very nice piece. Very him. moving piece, I have to yeah. say. Um, we often have. I don't know, would you say we had troubles, maybe the wrong word, but when so when an author dies, we're trying to find a way to say something about it that's just not author died, and that's yeah. <laughs> that, that's it. And this, I think, was one of the more successful attempts, uh, or, you know, one of the more successful tributes we've seen. Um, also wrote, let's see, you know, a lot of the other... A lot of the other books don't sound familiar to me. I, I'd heard of, I mean, the Prince of Tides, that was a huge movie in like 95. Yeah, that's um, the only one I've heard of. Barbara Streisand and Nick Nolte, I want to say. The star and you know, that. when we did that, when she wrote that tribute and I put it up on Facebook, I put it up in one of the less clicky slots because I didn't know, I just oh, didn't know that yeah. he was like so beloved, but the response was like this huge outpouring and we got all these comments on that that facebook push and i was like uh, oh i i'm uh, so sorry like, i, I have to say <laughs> i was felt the same way and i greatly underestimated the pat conroy loyalists out there and i don't know yeah. I, is it just i mean is it prince of tides and um the great santini or they were you noticing from the comments had they read a bunch of this stuff could you tell they read a bunch i think it was like fans like how yeah it reminded me of like irving fans yeah. like people when you read john irving you like read all of john irving and i think that it was kind of the same like people Liked Pat Conroy, read everything Pat Conroy wrote, and yeah, I just didn't I, that's know. interesting. Um, I yeah, I guess I would think of that's a the way that's a good comp in terms of like he's the Richard Russo of South Carolina sort of, yes, um, yes. and uh, uh, I just didn't know. So um, maybe I'll have to check one of these out at some point. And I have heard for a long time that The Prince of Tides, again, whenever when that movie came out, maybe it was like ninety one, ninety two. I can't remember. I'm 13. The last thing I want to see is a love story between two old people, right? I mean, that's just, yeah. and I never, I've never seen it, never gave it a chance. So I, I should probably go back and read the book. Um, I've heard the book is really um, pretty great. So that's one I should put on the, the ever broadening backlist um, someday, maybe list, mm-hmm. um, but uh, safe travels and happy trails to Pat Conroy. Um, okay. Well, I don't know. Where do you want to start? We're, we're, let's we're, start we're, with rolling. Let's start with rolling. Um, yeah, because I feel like that one's... This is one that'll stick, probably, um, yeah. of the two. So this week, J.K. Rowling um, released two installments of a four-part story on the Pottermore website um, that are about... Um, they're supposed to set the scene. This is all gearing up for Fantastic Beats and Where to Find Them, the movie coming out. I think that's kind of important to say, um, just because... I don't know. It puts in con not in context, but what's going on here? Why is she doing all this stuff? Um, and the first part of the story deals with Native American wizards. 
Um, and the synopsis is basically Rowling falls into the all too common trap of portraying Native Americans in a certain way, um, mm -hmm. in a stereotypical way. And it's very sort of earth bound plant that the, the, the Native American wizards are very good at animal and plant stuff. Um, <laughs> it's locked in time, the, you know, the depiction. I think that's one thing for those of us who care about representation of, of cultures. With Native Americans, the trap is, especially those who live in America, because these are the images we get. We get images like the one Rowling gives us of sort of, you know, wearing moccasins and, and leather goods and, you know, carrying on bows and arrows, where the Native American community is a living, breathing community, and it's diverse, and they're all over the place. They're in the mall with you. They're, you know, they're also, they also have reservations, but it's as, it's as a diverse community as any other one you're going to find in America. And it's not a, it's not a um, Sacagawea behind the glass at the Natural History Museum culture. Um, it's a living, breathing culture. And she fell, you know, I mean, I don't know what you think, but it seems to me she fell prey to either ignorance or laziness or both. Um, and giving us a dated, one-sided, and, you know, almost car caricature maybe is strong, but trope, a trope-filled, I would say, yeah. representation of, of Native American characters. And I think, I think, I think she deserves to be called out. I think, I think there's a lot of people being defensive because they love her, but also people are defensive about Native American stuff in America because we did such a, I mean, it just... Continue it's, to it's do. Continue to terrible. do such a terrible <clears throat> job, and it's a silent terrible job um, that we we don't have any way of saying anything about without just being like completely sad and mm -hmm. and just sort of overwhelmingly culpable for the ongoing mistreatment of Native American people. Um, what 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 should we say in addition to that? What do you think about this? What do you think happened here? Um, I think that she wrote. A piece of advertising for a movie that's coming out mm -hmm. in a slapdash and phoned in fashion, which honestly, most of the stuff she's put up on Pottermore has been awful. You know, like it's. You know, we haven't really talked about that. We've talked about that she's been doing just, it, but it's not that dumb. interesting. Like, yeah. She's sitting down at her typewriter or computer or whatever and taking 30 minutes to write five paragraphs, and then the community freaks out because, of course, they do, right? Mm -hmm. It's like a new saying from J.K. Rowling. Um, but they're. A surface level, like there's nothing to these little short snippets that she's putting up on Pottermore. They're just worthless. Anyway, I have a lot of feelings about that. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> the difference between those that she's done so far and this one is that this one is kind of racist. Mm -hmm. um, and so just, I think that she was continuing to do what she's always done on Pottermore, which is write really tossed off stuff. Um, and she didn't do the research and she didn't do you know, get a beta reader from any Native American or First Nations community. Um, she didn't do any of the things that you're supposed to do that you should do when yeah. you're a white person writing about a marginalized people group. Um, and because she didn't do that, since she's been writing about, you know, Harry and his, as a grown-up and all that stuff on Pottermore so far, it hasn't mattered. But now that she's doing the same thing and applying that same laziness to a marginalized and oppressed group of people, it's matters you know mm -hmm. now it matters um so i think that that's what happened and there are um a lot i mean most of the people spearheading this like reaction 
to the short story are Native American writers and figures on Twitter and, you know, throughout social media. And we put up a post about this that Justina, one of our contributors, wrote. And at the bottom of the post, I've linked to a bunch of those responses from Native American writers. So go read those because they go through the whole short story and point out all the problems that they have with the with the I don't even want to call it a short story because it's five paragraphs, but with the like five paragraphs that she wrote. And actually, one of the on that post, one of the commenters, uh, one of the comments we got was, "It's so short, you know. She didn't have space to go into <laughs> all of the differences between all of these cultures." And I, I feel like that's such a cop out. Like, if you're a talented writer, which J.K. Rowling obviously is, you do the thing that you have to do in the space you've allotted yourself. Mm-hmm. And she didn't do it. She phoned it in. She's it's she's insulted. I mean, if she, I'm Filipino, and if she had written a thing about the history of Asian or, you know, Pacific Islander magic and had pretended like every nation in Asia was the same. Yeah. There would be some kind of reaction to that, you know, and and pretending like every Native American nation is the same and does the same spiritual, has the same spiritual practices and the same kind of, like, that's, that's a big problem. Mm-hmm. But... I don't know why we're acting as if that's any different than sitting down and saying every Asian country and culture is identical or every African culture. Yeah, I mean, yeah, that's that's that sounds right to me. I mean, and it's a trap. I mean, it's I think I think one of the things that's striking is that that particular I don't know, it's its own kind of erasure to homogenize a heterodox, you know, people. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's something we do. We say we say Native American like it's a thing. Right. Mm -hmm. Where it's really it's like. That's really shorthand for a hundreds, if not thousands, of pre-colonial communities and cultures and tribes. You know, it's just yeah. it's unbelievably diverse. Um, uh, in North, and that's just North America. And we're really just talking now, really. I think about you forget about you know tribes in Mexico or Canada. We're really talking about United States violence against uh, indigenous peoples and the kinds of you know just unbelievable. Violence on every possible way. I mean, yeah. the, the literal um, genocide to, you know, physical relocation to cultural stereotyping and horrible depictions of Native American people to make it sort of easier to sleep at night knowing that, you know, basically you've pushed out or killed um, all the people who were here and living lives um, of richness and diversity before before white folks showed up. Um, and that's part of it that just, a you know, she, she may even not, you know, there's people are saying, well, she didn't know she's being racist. Well, okay, great. I don't know if that makes you feel better. She would have known if she got a beta reader. <laughs> yeah, it, that's what I'm saying. Like, she didn't even know to know. She didn't even yeah. know to ask. And that's, I think that in, that in the way that's almost, that speaks to the level of the, the problem we have thinking about Native American, like that she doesn't even know to think. Um, and that people are so quick to defend. Um, so quick to say it was short, so quick to say, well, she can't deal with all the complexity. It's just fiction. It's just fiction. Well, you know what? We it got isn't that, just that fiction. comment. It's, it, not, it's never just fiction. Right. It's not just fiction. And, you know, the other thing, too, that um, struck me, and I was, I, even when I read the story, like, again, this is not something I'm expert in, Native American representation. Um, I read some people, and I follow some people on Twitter that know much better than I, um, and we can put this in the show notes. Um but even when I caught this, I had never seen Rowling do anything like this before where – oops, sorry about Ooh. that um, – where she basically incorporates um, another culture's religious tradition directly into the text. Um, mm-hmm. And this is 
about you know th- I'll, this is now I'm reading directly from the her story. The legend of the Native American skinwalker, an evil witch or wizard that can transform into an animal at will, has its base in fact. A legend grew up about the Native American and a magi that they had sacrificed. So she's incorporating and skinwalk and skinwalkers like I know that's something people know, but it's actually it comes from the Navajo tradition. It has meaning. You know, you should think of it like other religious traditions you take seriously. You don't say it has a basis in fact, because I'm actually makes it sound like it's myth or legend, which, you know, you wouldn't say that about a Judeo-Christian belief system. You just wouldn't do it like this. You just wouldn't. And she's never touched, as far as I know, and I've read most of the books, she's never touched like saying there's something about magic that has to do with like, oh yeah, and uh, Peter was actually a wizard, you know, or like something like this. Like, and if she had done that, just think of the craziness that would come out of doing something like this. But this is a community she doesn't know. Um, she's not, she, you know, she doesn't have any sort of responsibility. Doesn't even know to have a responsibility towards it. Like she might think that she has a responsibility to like not touch sort of the Anglican church or something like this. But yeah, this is actually, just sort of available to her to just do whatever with and treat like it's gone, you know, or like Greek myth or something right, like that, I guess. Right, um, And she's uh, one of the commenters on the post that we put up is from the UK and was saying that, I don't know how to treat this, you know, like whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, she was saying that in the UK, there's there's so far removed from any like violence or any concepts of how we treated yeah. and continue to treat uh, Native Americans or First Nations people that like there's no like people still dress up yeah. with, with headdresses and stuff for Halloween over there because they have no they idea. Don't know. Well, they the don't representations know they, don't know. they get like it's it you know Westerns are hugely popper popular, excuse me, in um, the UK and England. And, you know, Cowboys and Indians is a hugely popular, you know, genre, I mean, in the US, but that was, you know, especially popular in Europe. And they don't get any counter narratives. Like, that's the narrative they get. These big sort of just fiction narratives and representations of Native people. And this is what happens. I mean, like, it perpetuates itself. um, And it's it's really disappointing. And I don't know what can be done about it at this point. I'd like to, she is active on Twitter. I, I, I'd like to think she's taking it seriously because you know she's seeing it, don't you think? Oh, totally. Yeah, and that's one of the one of the criticisms she's gotten from people on Twitter is that you know you know we know that you see that we have problems mm-hmm. with these things, but she's not saying anything. All she said was somebody asked her a question about skinwalkers, and all she said was, "Well, in my magical world, skinwalkers were not a real thing. It was a yeah. thing people made up, and it is a real thing. Like it's a real thing that that some tribes that's part of their actual religious mm-hmm. understanding, and you've just." Yeah. You appropriated it and then you dismissed it, like uh-huh. all in one. Right, thing. and, and, and like, something she never do, did to a European culture. Like no. she never said uh, the boogeyman was actually uh, Boggart or something. You know, like yeah. she never sort of. She was always very careful in the books, and it struck me again looking at this and thinking about what she's done to European cultures and with European cultures versus this. She's always very careful to have like sort of a parallel universe, the Wizarding World. You know, it, it doesn't share. I mean, it's there's Christmas, I guess, but it's all very just like you open a sweater and there's a tree. There's like no, there's no belief system behind it. It's all very just sort of surface level, and it's not appropriate. It's like actually, you know, Christmas with Christmas trees were invented by a wandering wizard named Saint Nick. You know, like there's none yeah. of that. That that would be the equivalent, right? I mean, that would be something like. But she would know not to do that and to sort of leave it alone, and 
you know, it's interesting to think, and I don't think, I, I'm sorry if I've seen this written because I've read a few things about this. It, it, there, it, this whole new wizarding world school thing is like a very colonialist, colonialist move on the uh-huh. part. Uh-huh, and you would think that somebody from the UK, which is one of the greatest colonizers in the history well, they're, of they're, they the Well, they have the world. crown. I mean, they, they are, right? <laughs> right, I mean, you think that you would automatically be like, well, I'm writing about white people invading a brown culture. Maybe yeah. I should be a little careful here, even if this isn't the history of my nation. Like... Yeah, and, <laughs> and just sort of you know, and she it, calls them explorers in the short explorers, story. Explorers, yeah, the white explorers, people. She calls explorers. them explorers. They were genocidal murderers, and she called them explorers. I just, I mean, you could go to conquerors, right? I mean, you could go sure. a lot of different ways. Um, and it's it is surprising, and it does speak to, you know, I always I always thought about the the Harry Potter books. It is a weirdly small world. Um, and only toward the last couple of books where you get wizards flying around, like in London, does the seal kind of break between the wizarding world and the real world. Well, and this, she's really tried to crack it open and taken on tasks and representational duties that she clearly wasn't ready to do in a responsible or even thoughtful kind of way. Um, she, it's as simple, I think, as She's she she's read about she read a couple of pieces online about Native American mm-hmm. beliefs. Um, she googled it and has has sort of has the people walking around in headdresses on Halloween, and you know built something up around that. She's um, never been great. No, at no race. No, you know, like Harry Potter as Harry Potter is such an amazing. How to word this? Okay, it's. It's done such great things for literature. It's done such great things for reading and for kids. And it has such a, an amazing, like, anti-bullying and acceptance. You know, there are studies yeah. out there about how reading Harry Potter makes you a more empathetic and accepting human being. But the, the actual diversity in the Harry Potter world is awful. And right. people have pointed that out before. So it's both surprising and not surprising that she ended up doing this. Like, And, and I think yeah. people, people have like, put her on this pedestal. They idolize her so much because Harry Potter means so much to so many people mm-hmm. that when she messes up, it's like the yeah. hero has fallen, you know? Right. But in reality, yeah. she's messed up in this way before. Like, it's not. Yeah. And, know. you know, because it's like, who do you get? You get Cho Chang and Pavarti and Kingsley Shacklebolt. I don't even remember if he's, if he's marked as Indian in the books or not. I don't remember. I don't know if it's just the movies where they, they cast the. Um, I used to know the actors. In name. a seven volume thing, you yeah. get like three or four side characters. Right. Are, no. um, yeah. And all of them, I mean, all of them, I mean, I'm guessing Cho Chang is Chinese. I don't know ever said, but you know, British colonialism in Hong Kong, British colonial mm-hmm. in India, like there's reason those are the ethnicities that show up in the Harry Potter world. And it's not commented upon, but she doesn't really, I mean, it's, again, it's so divorced from the real political world that, it's, you know, I'd like to see more characters of color in the Harry Potter work, but you don't really, it's not really built to comment upon real political realities of the no, real world. No. It, use, it does it allegorically through muggles and half-bloods and elf liberation societies. Um, but now it's that, for children. <laughs> but now that she seems to be breaking the seal into the real world of actual historical reality and colonial reality and... Um, it just, it can't, you can't proceed with the same kind of hand wavy, well, it's just wizard stuff that I made up. I don't think you can. No, you can't. And pe- like one of the other points about the story is that 
she mentions that the the European wizarding world had contact with the Native American wizarding world, as she words it, you know, for a long time because magic or whatever. And then only after several hundred years did they go over there, did the explorers actually go over there, which other people were pointing out that that means that in this world she's creating, the European wizarding world allowed this genocide to happen. They had contact with this, you know. And so it's stuff like that where it's fiction, obviously. And this is a super short story, yes, but she's adding to a world that exists and she's doing it so thoughtlessly and we all expect so much more from her because she built this amazing world Mm -hmm. and now that she's adding onto it she can't do it right like she can't you know she's not putting the same thought and care that she put into building harry potter yeah you know and so i don't know like these kind of details a lot of the reaction that we got was you're overthinking it, you're reacting, and, like, I really don't think so. We expect something from a billionaire author. Mm-hmm. We expect more from her, and I don't think that's unfair. I don't think... And I think, if anything, the critique would be... I don't know. Maybe it wouldn't be as pointed if it was not someone of her stature. I Maybe it would be. It's hard to say. I think the interest wouldn't be as high. No. But I think I think people would be even much more willing to hear I, th- I think her stature makes people even less willing to hear not that they're willing to hear about native american um violence and erasure anyway not like that's mm-hmm. something people are here for all the time let's talk about that <laughs> yeah even in our own i mean to, to be on, to be completely honest even our own you know work and writing it doesn't come up that much we don't mm-hmm. write about it that much no um and not as much as we could um and should possibly um so i you know i'm not surprised that people are basically falling back on their own narrative patterns um, about Native Americans. I, I just, I guess I am, I am, the thing I am surprised, I'm not surprised that she mucked it up. I thought she would mucked it up differently than this. I really didn't mm-hmm. think she was going to appropriate medicine men and skinwalkers and like appropriate other people's religious traditions um, and histories like this. I thought she would handle it something like she did with Hogwarts, which is kind of a place apart from the British culture of its time. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought, you know, there'd be something like that where there might be, you know, students who are Native American, but there are also students who are black and Hispanic and white and Asian and, um, you know, the whole kind of make it like Hogwarts for America, not having it be so sort of, you know, uh, colors of the winds sort of crap. I mean, it's yeah, really... Yeah, it's a Disney Pocahontas, yes. <laughs> yeah, it's just very, it's just, it's very distressing and it it is disappointing and um, I think it's something that I, I didn't expect. I, I frankly, when she said when we knew there was going to be a school that had something to do with Native Americans, like what kind of bad was, is it going to be? And it, yeah. I think it's worse than I thought. To be honest, it's worse than I thought it was going to be. Um, I know. hope she says something. She's got to say something, right? Like you can't just. <sighs> I have no <sighs> idea. I mean, it's a diff- she's in a very difficult position. Um, I, I don't really feel bad for her. She's in a tough spot. Like. What do you do? You can recant. Mm-hmm. You take it down. I guess you could. Yeah. Yeah. You take it down. Um, uh, my concern is what's in the movie. I'm not going to see the movie. I don't think I'm going to either. I'm, I wasn't interested in any way. Maybe if yeah. it's not a disaster, I'll go see it on video or something. But you just like because that stuff is shot like that stuff. You can't she can't undo that. You know, if there's stuff in the can that Warner Brothers is going to release. Um, but, you know, the sad part is that. Is anyone going to care? I don't know. Maybe that's why we're talking about it now. So that maybe you'll care um, if you're listening and maybe you'll talk to other people who care and maybe you'll start, you know, or think about how it's portrayed and um, 
you know, our own blindnesses about, you know, we all have our own um, ethnic and racial and cultural blindnesses. Um, this is just one we saw coming uh, in a Mack truck down I-70 from Denver, <laughs> um, a million miles away. Um, so go read Native Appropriations, the blog. Yeah, go read Native Appropriations. And Debbie Reese's Twitter. And program. Debbie Reese, um, who writes uh, children's and uh, excuse me, Native Americans in children's literature. Uh, Debbie Reese was also on Reading Lives. Um, had a really interesting talk with her. Um, so, if you're interested in that, uh, go check that out. Um, it's too bad. It's too bad. Uh, all right. Should we go to rant number two? Yeah, let's get it over with. <laughs> I, I didn't. You know what? I saw this headline come through. I didn't read it just because I didn't want to. I mean, <laughs> I don't, tell me. So tell me what's tell, <clears throat> tell me what's going on with this one. Okay, so a novelist uh, named Camilla Shamsi last year made, wrote a blog post or an article. I think it was in the Guardian, suggesting that in order to combat gender disparities in publishing, that 2018 be the year of publishing women. That and she, the caveat was she knew that this was not actually going to happen. It was just a thought experiment. So, um, so she put out this call, 2018. Let's only publish women because obviously there's this big. Um, gender gap in like in the amount of women who were reviewed you can go to Vita Lit and see that and like women who win prizes and all this stuff and so recently at a um at, on some panel I guess Lionel Shriver who wrote we need to talk about Kevin um she was on an international women's day panel when she said this which is just hilarious to me called the idea of having a year of publishing women rubbish and that she said, this whole thing of treating women specially as if they need special help and special rules is problematic and obviously backfires, um, which is malarkey. <laughs> so <laughs> uh, this whole thing of treating women as if they need special help. Well, they do because of sexism. Mm. I don't know if you were aware of sexism, but it is a thing that exists in the world. I am so angry. I don't even like... Uh, I can't. Yeah. So here's 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 the quote. Uh, well, it's part of the quote. This the the selected quote. Um, she described the proposal you're publishing women as rubbish. The whole thing of treating women specially as if they need special help and special rules is problematic and obviously backfires, she said. Shriver compared it to the Bailey's Women's Pride for Fiction, which she won in 2005 for her novel We Need to Talk About Kevin when it was known as the Orange Prize. Not her novel, the prize. Her novel was right. not known as the Orange Prize. No. Um, it is not as meaningful to me to have won the Orange Prize as say it would have been to win the Booker. Most people who win that prize surely say the same thing. You have eliminated half the human race from applying. Um, there is this problem of suggesting that we need help, that men have to leave the room, and then we're prize worthy. The idea of only publishing women is the same thing. That's such bollocks. <laughs> yeah, it's. Um, can you? Can we have the money back that she won? I'm sure she'd be willing to give it back for the Bailey's uh, Prize. Like I'm sure that the Orange Prize. And would I be guess happy. the logic is. I mean, I would. I, I I shouldn't say I didn't read it. I didn't read the whole article. I read her comments, and I didn't want to read anything else because I was just like, well, what? <sighs> I guess it's a, is it a fundamental misunderstanding of how this works? Like, what is going on? I, I'm just so surprised. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, Shriver, if she's an interesting writer, I've in, um, uh, we need to talk about Kevin, interesting book. God, what was the other one that was like about healthcare? Uh, anyway, I can't remember the name of it right now. But she is, a, she's cranky. Uh, and and oftentimes in useful ways. Um, this seems to me an unuseful way. Um, but... So her argument is, if you do anything that, I mean, the logical extension is that if you do anything 
that acknowledges that sexism is real, then that's wrong because it suggests that sexism is is real. I it doesn't. This is like okay. So this is like the gender equivalent of people who say to me that like. BET and Ebony magazine are racist, right? Like right. the fact that, that black people have their own entertainment stations or their own media is excluding white people and is implying that they are worse than the musicians yeah, who are white. Right, which is right. just like it's so ridiculous to me. I don't even sometimes I don't I can't even articulate how like why that is so silly, but they exist because they have to. They exist because they're not allowed. And in this context, the Bailey's Prize exists because women are proportionally excluded from the Booker and from the Nobel Prize. 85% of the winners of the Nobel Prize for Literature are men. 85%! That is insanity! <laughs> and, like, to pretend that there's no sexism in those those systems and that, that it's a completely level playing field and that the only reason that the year of publishing women idea or that the Orange Prize exists is because I don't... I don't know, because we need men to leave the room so we can talk about ourselves is insulting. It's insulting to women who have had to deal with sexism in the publishing industry. Mm. And also the fact that you're a white woman writing in English from America, like you don't get to complain. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's just the ugh, I'm like, working yeah, myself I, I don't up here. I guess. And I guess I don't see what she suggests. The downside is is problematic and obviously backfires. How is it obviously backfired? But then she goes on to talk about how her sales went up when she won the Orange Prize. Is that a backfire? The fact that you, a woman's voice was spotlighted and your sales yeah. rose? Like, and is that? Tell it, me what the bad part about it is. It is not as meaningful to me to have won the Orange Prize, say it would have been to win the Booker. Okay. It, it's not as meaningful that I, you know, that I get paid X versus Y dollar. I mean, I, because one thing is not as prestigious to other that all other things shouldn't exist. Like, I don't get it. I just don't get it. I mean, there's some, there's some, there's some premise in her argument that she's upset about. And maybe this is her own reaction to sexism is maybe, you know, this is this, you know, historically, this has been one thing that happens is that certain people from a marginalized or oppressed group don't want to be identified um, as a member of that group or principally identified. Like it goes, you know, the, the one I know is um, County Cullen in the Harlem Renaissance didn't want to be known as a Negro writer. He just wanted to be known as a writer. And right. Langston Hughes was like, that's bullshit, basically, you know, yeah. like, you know, and it's, it, this is a version of that argument. Um, that's the, that's the, that's, I only use that one because that's the one I'm with, with which I'm most familiar, but it's also the, the oldest one I know, you know, it's now it's a hundred years old, that kind of in-group, out-group policing of where I get to be and where I want to be. Um, and it might be a way of, of Shriver herself trying to resist cultural and institutional sexism by trying to, I don't know, spit out one of the responses to sexism. It's, it feels like pandering to me. It reminds me of that Claire V. Watkins essay that came out yeah. uh, last year about uh, like how she was talking about how she wrote her book, Battleborn, her collection of short stories, for a male audience because mm -hmm. she, was, she was pandering to men so that they would accept her into their publishing white tower. And that's what this feels like to me. Like you're saying the mm. thing about how the booker is the thing to win and about how women's issues in publishing aren't real because it just sounds pandering. Like so that they will accept you into their Booker Prize white tower. Like is that... We're yeah. throwing all of these women authors under the bus. And also, like, I really do feel like if this were a woman of color, no woman, of, I don't, I'm not going to say no woman of color, but I have never heard a, a female author of color say anything like this because 
as much as women are sidelined, women who are brown or black are further sidelined. Women who aren't straight are further sidelined. Women who don't write in English are further sidelined. And all of, you know, there was that su- that study that just came out about how most publishing employees are white women. So it's mm-hmm. not like Lionel Shriver lacks her allies in the publishing world. You know, it's just a very, she's sitting for, from a very privileged position and yeah. telling other women, especially women who have intersections of oppression, that, that their concerns are silly. And it's just insulting. And I'm not saying that she meant any of that. This sounds like a very offhand remark that she made on a panel, but sure. you, know, you got to think about what you say before you say it. <laughs> well, you know, and it could, it could be from her position now as part, I think, you know, she's won the Orange Prize. She's, she's, she went to Columbia. Like she's written for every major publication, Financial Times, New York Times, Economist, Wall Street Journal. She's written what, like eight? Oh God, I'm looking now. Like 12 novels. Um, She's had a couple of them made into movies. Like from her point of view, she, she, maybe she feels like she doesn't, she's not subject to sexism in a meaningful way anymore. I'm not Mm -hmm. saying she's right. She just, she may be so divorced from the realities of other people's situations that she's going to throw the baby out with the bathwater. Um, say, you know, I don't need any of this. So no one does. I think that's kind of what you were saying. Maybe it's, um, also, you know, interestingly, like it's just she's interesting because I remember she changed her name from I'm looking, I'm trying to find it here. She changed her name when she was a kid to Lionel because she thought a male name fit her better. So it's, it's an inter- she's she's navigating this line and it's been something she's clearly been doing for a long time. Um, it, it sounds to me she doesn't like being thought of as a woman. Frankly, I mean, this is kind of what the, the Langston Hughes says of County Cullen that she doesn't want to be the female. She author. doesn't she want to be the author. female author. She right. just wants to be an author. She wants which I can, you know, that Colin Hughes fight I've always found so interesting because I kind of I've always sympathized with both sides because mm-hmm. I can I've always sort of thought as un you know it's, of course it's unfair that you can't just be whoever you want to be of course that's unfair and of course it's it's unreasonable to say you can just decide how culture sees you um, and how other people see people from your own culture so it, I, I have sympathy for the difficulty of that um, it did seem a particularly cold response i think that's also something that that you you sort of threw into leaf when like she wasn't thinking about other people in this response it doesn't seem to me it sounds very it's very condescending yeah and patronizing and i think about like you know three percent of the books published in english are works in translation and only 20 percent of those are written by women and Mm -hmm. so you know you talk to an author from south korea and tell her well you don't need special help getting published it's like you actually, you're just ignorant. Like, you don't even know what you don't know. Like, you don't right. know what you're saying. Um, and that kind of thing just really bothers me, especially in terms of gender issues in this industry, because you can say things like that and they're actively harmful. Like, it's not just you spouting off at the mouth and you've said a silly thing and whatever. It's like, that actually hurts people. Right, because so. there's a certain so, element of the literary audience that's primed to want to nod their head to that. Right. Right, yeah. so yeah, you know, this is all crap. That there's, yeah. there's a special prize for women and blah, blah, blah. Like... It it does sort of feed back into the fire, um, and you know, I I think Rebecca and I were talking offline, or some, no, Jen Northington and I were talking mm-hmm. about the Bailey's Prize, and you know, of the ones that are out there, the ones that we kind of look at the long list with most interest because there's a lot of books I don't know about that come out on the Bailey's yeah, uh, yeah long same. list. It came out recently, actually, it came out this week, um, and 
for for you know and maybe it maybe from where she sits is white men are right maybe she doesn't see the need for this but that's only one part of what's going on here and mm-hmm. it is interesting and i don't know how you would do it but there is no prize for i mean people of color like there is no equivalent isn't that interesting though like mm-hmm. there isn't a bailey's <clears throat> prize for race or or um gender identity or something like that there's no equivalently you know, there's no prize that you and I could name, I don't think. There might be some out there. That's why I'm sort of saying that that, mm-hmm. that you and I, or if we link to on the site, people say, oh, the Bailey's prize is out, the, the long list. Yeah. Um, there's not an equivalent for other kinds of um, identity. And I think that's interesting to, to use, sort of to try to use what she said as a, a wedge to try to think of something more interesting. It could be that we're ready for a different kind of prize. Like what, what, what kind of prize? Because like, I think in its best iteration, these kinds of prizes do highlight authors and titles, people who buy books at Barnes and Noble or other places Mm -hmm. wouldn't hear about, right? Like that's kind of the idea. It's like get them to buy, get them to understand, get exposure to all the kinds of great writers that are out there um, who are a million different kinds of things. And I'm a little surprised that we haven't come up, someone hasn't done a Bailey's Prize for, you know, people of color, for, um, you know, any kind, you know, maybe it's not even authors. Maybe it's about representations or stories or like there's a million different ways you can do it. But maybe the time has come for something that's more overtly intersectional, I guess is what I'm trying to mm-hmm. say. I, I don't know how it would be I done. The only thing I can think of is the lambdas. Is that- yeah, lambda. Uh, that, but I, but if we talk to 100 people who read this site, how many of them know the lambdas? Yeah, yeah, that's, yeah. I yeah. guess that's what You're I'm right. Not that they're not out there. I, I'm, I'm trying very hard not to erase that the people doing work out there in these areas at the same time highlighting that none of them seem to have broken through in the ways that, like, say, the, the Orange Prize and the Bailey's Prize has. That's that's yeah. what I'm trying to identify. Um, and maybe there's something we can get involved in doing there. But that's what things like this particular conversation, you know, is ongoing. And the Orange Prize has been a while. But it is interesting that if we really do believe these – I guess I was coming from the other way. If you do believe this prize is worth something, then why aren't there other kinds of prizes that sort of are trying to highlight other underrepresented – voices mm-hmm. um so anyway. <laughs> any female writer in her right mind would rather win the booker because it's more meaningful that's what she said i just in the in her right mind seems a real mm-hmm. i mean may, i don't know is she sort of i mean maybe she's sort of categorically right that if you pulled 100 women authors and said would you rather read the win the bailey's or the booker maybe they'd rather win the booker but that's only because it's bigger more sales <laughs> yeah more i mean I think it would just be pragmatic. I don't know that it had anything to do with like quote unquote prestige. Um, and it's all. I think I would so much rather win the Baileys. Though. Like the would? Booker feels so literary, snooty, insidery to me. Not that I mean it's a great prize and I I pay attention to it, but compared to winning a prize like given to you by your peers, mm. women who have gone through the same sort of stuff that you've gone through to get where you've got. I don't know. That just feels more meaningful to me than. Yeah. The right. booker, so I don't. Yeah, but I'm not an author, so maybe no, I'm just not in my right mind. Yeah, I don't. I don't have any idea. I was just thinking from. I don't know what the sales results are. I know yeah. the booker sells a lot of copies. I'm sure. Maybe it does. the Bailey's does too. I don't happen to know. I haven't heard. I, but from a strictly pocketbook point of view, I was saying that if so, I'm sure there are people doing that calculus because people out there got to eat. Um, mm-hmm. So that's that's our that's the rant point of rant part of the show. Um. You know, it's it's an interesting time. You know, I think that's something we've seen a lot over the last couple of years as, you know, 
we've been doing the site is that um, that white feminism is its own kind of feminism, and there's a lot of work to be done. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's <laughs> that's that's something to keep in mind. Um, and I'll leave it at that for now. Um, let's go to Audible. Next sponsor, Audible.com. Uh, have you heard of audiobooks? Apparently, they're a thing now. I have heard rumor. I've that, heard tell. <laughs> so what you do is. Um, uh, where someone was describing me this game they were playing where they had to describe you had to pretend you were describing a current technology to someone from the 17th century uh, and like how much like back description you have to you'd like what you have to describe to even describe the thing you're describing so like if I'm describing audiobooks to say um, Phyllis Wheatley right who's writing you know she's writing poems in uh, the 18th 17th and 18th centuries uh, well not all those things but you know Back in the day. Mm-hmm. What do I have to describe to describe audiobooks? I've got to describe, I guess, all of electronics. Uh, <laughs> the concept of electronics. The equipment. internet. Uh, yes. Recording. De- like, there, I have to go, well, we started by recording people's voices on these wax cylinders and sort of go. <laughs> I mean, it is, it's, I, I'm joking, but what I'm trying to get at a little bit here is it's hard to, it's hard for me sometimes to remember kind of how crazy awesome audiobooks are. Mm-hmm. especially because I was around for some of the transitions from tape to CD and then CD to basically nothing, right? Whatever the little, the bytes on your, your phone or your computer hard drive are that are, you know, essentially empty space or just like electrical signals. Um, what an amazing technology is. And I was listening to audiobook um, when I was getting ready to, 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 to take the kids to school the other day. And I'm just, and I had five minutes, I plugged them in and I'm listening to this audiobook um, that I downloaded from the air uh, on, onto my smartphone, which is basically a computer that it could have run the Apollo 11 um, moon mission with room to spare. Um, but an Audible, you can enjoy all the benefits of an audiobook at audible.com, over 180,000 titles leading from the leading audiobook publishers. And this is another thing too, broadcasters, entertainers, magazines, and newspapers are making a lot of audio content online. Um, business or information providers, you know, has been a boon um, to people who need different kinds of accessibility for whom reading text on a screen or in a book is not the easiest thing in the world. Um, sometimes we get an audiobooks isn't reading argument from various parts of the internet that we play whack-a-mole with. <laughs> and one of the best responses I've seen someone say is, um, are, are you going to say that to someone who for one reason or another can't read text? And I think once you put it into, throw it into relief like that, you realize what a short cited um excuse the reference um uh kind of way of thinking about reading that is and for me i have to say audiobooks have been a boon to my own life especially as my life has gotten more complicated and the time i have to sit down um and be dedicated to only a book or a text uh has diminished um I'm unbelievable. Just the other day, Michelle was looking for another audiobook to listen to, and I gave her a suggestion, and she wasn't sure if she liked it, so I used their great listen guarantee. Got right there, returned it, got my got my money back within like 10 seconds. Um, they don't do any review. They know that listening to audiobook is a huge time commitment, and that narration is its own kind of readerly relationship, let's put it that way, and that if you don't like a narrator, even if you are interested in the book, that you can't, you know, you can't you're not going to be able to get through the whole thing. So the one reason they have this great listen guarantee is like it makes it you're confident that if you buy something that you're going to find something you like because you can return something that that grates on you or you just can't listen to for 8 or 12 or 15 hours. You know, you know I haven't talked about this with Audible before. If you have a membership, they often run these really great specials um, that are only available to members. And last week, 
or it might have been the week before, they had a slew of audiobooks. Like their best selling audiobooks were on sale for six bucks for like a week. And some of the things I've recommended on the show were available for six bucks. Uh, How We Got to Now by Stephen Johnson, um, Gun, Germs, and Steel by his last name is Diamond. I can't remember his first name right now. Um, something I talked about. So there are some other perks to being an Audible member besides getting a whole bunch of great audiobooks um, that can play on virtually any device you have. For a free 30-day trial membership, go to audiblepodcast.com slash bookwrite. That'll get you started. Start putting together your wish list. Download your phone. Unlike other ebook services, you own these. So even if you stop being a member, you can still run the app and you can still play books out of your library. You can share an account with up to five other devices. Um, Michelle and I and my brother and her sister all share an Audible account. Um, and we can, you know, listen to the books that other people are choosing. So you can sort of, you can, you can build a listening library for your constructed um, listening unit of uh, familial relation. Um, or non-familiar, whatever, whatever, whatever group you want to put together. So it's audiblepodcast.com slash book riot. Okay. All right. Um, let's get into the more, I guess you call these the nerdier, um, bits of news. Uh, this is one speaking, speaking of electronic books, this is, this is a, uh, reader services announcement. I don't know if any of you have been following the ebook conspiracy price fixing case. <laughs> ebook conspiracy. Uh, <laughs> the world's most boring conspiracy. Yeah, I tweet, did you see my tweet about that the other day? <laughs> no, no. I said, could you think of a more billion, more boring $400 million conspiracy than the ebook pricing? Conspiracy? Oh, you can't. That's the no. answer. Um, but if you did buy ebooks through Apple, in between 2010 and 2012, you could be getting a pretty good rebate. So it finally came to a head where all the appeals went all the way up to the Supreme Court that Apple was appealing this $400 million decision. Um, and basically the Supreme Court said, we're not going to hear it, which means it's over. There's nowhere else they go. They're going to have to pay it. If you bought eBooks from HarperCollins, Hachette, Macmillan, Penguin, or Simon Schuster, the big five, between April 1st, 2010 and May 21st, 2012, Using a U.S. billing address, you're likely eligible for part of the payment. Um, I'll drop a link in the show notes if you want to find out. And I, at first, I was like, God, you're just going to get pennies back. Why does it even matter? But actually, um, if you bought a New York Times bestseller during those years, you'll get between $6 and $6.54 back per ebook. Mm-hmm. And other books can be between $139 and $1.50 each. So if you're someone like me or that, you know, in 2010 and 20, between 2010 and 2012 was my prime ebook buying years before I had kids. Um, and some of them I bought with Apple, like, you know, if you were buying a bunch of Apple books, you could be getting several hundred books back. Like it's not inconceivable that you could right. get a real chunk of change. Um, this is all the result of basically Apple and the big five publishers agreeing to fix the prices of ebooks. I don't want to get into a big discussion about what was ethical and what wasn't. I think it was pretty clearly illegal, frankly. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you can't get together with people who supply 80% of the books in the North America and decide how to set prices. Like, But uh, on the other hand, to say that Amazon was in distress and sort of didn't have any recourse is also phony baloney. Anyway, um, it's all it's all over and done with. So if you did buy Apple eBooks um, in any meaningful way in those years, you might see you might have you know stuff for probably get a few ebooks out of it. Uh, it sounds like. So that's the end of that story. Um, where do we want to go from here? Let's see. I, I want to talk about the literate nation. Yes, thing. I was going to say that's one you put in that I don't think I had seen. Um, so what's going on with this? 
Uh, there's a new study conducted by, what is it, Central Connecticut State University. Yeah. They do uh, ranking, they, they mm-hmm. do some other they do some other literary based polling they and do, studies. Yeah, and I can't remember what it is, but it's yeah. something about literacy rates, yeah. I think. Anyway, I just wanted to say that it's not just some random study. Not that they would discredit, but they they do a bunch of studies like this. We've cited Central Connecticut State before. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah. Um so they did a new study ranking countries of the world and mm-hmm. their literacy rates. And the headline from the Washington Post is the U.S. is, like, they've changed it. At first it said, the U.S. wasn't even making the top five. And there was, like, this hand-wringing uh, <laughs> headline. And it was really funny, and I loved it. Um, so, yeah, the U.S. is number seven in um, literacy in the world. The first, one, two, three, four, all of them. The first six countries are Nordic or, uh, yeah, Well, Northern the Swiss? Europe. I don't know. Yeah, are they Nordic? Or, or Northern Europe. Northern, Finland, yeah, well, Norway. they're central. I mean, we can split hairs. But this the top, is not. This is Northern. The top, the top five are all Scandinavian. <coughs> yeah. And then Switzerland. Finland, Norway, Iceland, Denmark, Sweden, Switzerland, yeah. and then the U.S. And then I after guess that Iceland's not Scandinavian. Germany, Latvia, and the Netherlands. Uh-huh. So, yeah, so white people I, have it unlocked. <laughs> I was actually, you know, to be honest, I saw, I actually saw some Twitter chat about this. I thought the U.S. would be much lower, to be honest. Oh, really? Well, I don't I know. I have a bad case of American exceptionalism, oh, so I always well, expect I don't to know. be I mean, I, I'm actually surprised that we're a bunch of some of these Europe, like, we're above Canada. Like, yeah, that's weird. We're above, you know, the these social, you know, socialist. I, I thought we'd be behind most of this, you know, European socialist countries. But, like, we're, we're way above the U.K., way above Belgium. Australia's the, the Belgian the Belgians can't be happy about this. They're 18 where their their uh, rivals the Danes are at 4. Anyway, I'm looking They're at right. in, in Ireland, Austria, you know, some Japan, I was surprised by to yeah, they're where's 32. The first, where's the first like non-western? I think Japan at th- well, uh Israel at 19. Yeah. Um New South Zealand Korea at 15, but that's not South that, Korea yeah. at 22. Um, so it's really Israel. Israel at nineteen. Yeah, Israel, the and then Cyprus thirty three, um, China at thirty nine. Mexico. Japan is thirty two. Mexico at thirty eight. Um, once you get into thirties, Singapore is thirty six, and then Chile, Mexico, China. Yeah, Greece, right. Yeah, so like once I'm you get into to see, the what's 30s. the first African country? Tunisia, I think, at fifty two. Yeah, see one above that. Um, and then South Africa is fifty six. I don't know. I I thought. If you would have just asked me, I would have put. I would have expected Germany to be ahead. I would have expected the Japan to be ahead. I would have expected to be ahead of the U.S. The U.S., the U.K., mm-hmm. Australia, um, and and only because my understanding, at least, is that our poverty rates are higher mm-hmm. than most of those countries, and there's a strong correlation between poverty and literacy. Um, so I'd have to go. I'd have to check my existing understanding of that cause that relationship between poverty and poverty and literacy because i i thought i would expect you know because we also come i think in the math ones we also come out way lower than this usually mm-hmm. um, oh yeah so i it's I, the america's most literate cities that's the other survey yes do. the Amer- most literate cities the one we always are interested in but also give the caveats of they it's always like, just northern virginia whatever. yeah because it's <laughs> because of phds around you know the the military industrial intelligence complex around washington dc um yeah i so you thought you were surprised we were seven like what were you surprised by in this list um anything Anything? i'm always well i i'm always surprised when we do better than japan at literally anything like any and germany too when it comes to education just really anything um 
I, I did expect us to be in the top five. I don't know why. Just yeah. American arrogance. No real reason or basis, in fact. Um, it does not surprise me, but I do find it a little delightful that the top five are, like, yeah. it's just cold. Is that why? Because there's nothing else to do in Finland but, like, huddle inside and read. Well, also, what, to be honest, I think the real reason is that they've got a bunch of oil money and small population. So they're funding. Small population. They're, they have nor, the North Sea oil money they get for those countries is insane. Mm-hmm. And and on a per capita basis, they can just spend so much money. Um, you know, one thing that's not talked about, and uh, our friend Clint likes to tell us about how great Canada is, though I always come back with, well, it's nice when you have zero people and you have all those fossil fuels you're selling to the rest of the world. I mean, that, you know, one thing, it's one thing to remember about some of these things where you see Canada and these Scandinavian countries come out when anything that's related to federal spending, basically, mm-hmm. they've got all these fossil fuel dollars to spend. And and God love them for spending it on education. But, yeah. it's, you know, it's not necessarily, they're not making huge sacrifices in other areas to fund the kids is what I'm, I guess what I'm getting at a little bit. Too. So interestingly, the variables that they used to come up with this ranking was standardized testing and then usage rates of libraries, newspaper yeah. circulation, educate, computer availability and stuff like that. But farther down in the article... Um, the guy who runs the study says that if you were only using standardized literacy testing, then the Pacific Rim countries would be at the top. Singapore, South Korea, Japan, yeah, China. Yeah, so that makes a lot more sense to me because I know, yeah. um, I've looked at this before, that the literacy rate of the U.S. is not awesome. Um, the world U.S., the world literacy rate is 86.3%. Um, and the U.S., I mean, you know, it's a huge economy, huge rich country. It's not terrible. Um, but it is, if I'm looking for it now, I'm missing it, uh, not reported by UNESCO. Isn't that interesting? <laughs> um, but something like one in five adults in the U.S. can't read at a third grade level. level. Um, and so I know that, so it is interesting that they actually may be, they may be measuring functions of wealth more than functions of yeah. actual reading ability. When factors such as library size and accessibility are added in, that's when the Pacific Why include that? I don't know. Library size? Don't we just want to know how many people can read at at a high school? I mean, whatever benchmark for like actual being able to read words on a page are? Yeah, this feels less like a a literacy ranking and more like a how literary is your country. Or how rich your country is. Well, those are kind of the same. Function, well, (laughs) maybe. How literary is your country and how rich is your country? Oh, literary. Oh, literary. Yeah, yeah. I'm sorry. I'm I'm now confusing literate and literary again in my mind. But yeah, I don't think this is the ranking I want now that I'm thinking about this. This is not what I want. Do I care about this? I mean, I guess I do, but that's not the, when they're saying the most literate countries, that's not, that's not what I'm thinking. I'm thinking how many people can read. Yeah. And if that's just the standard that we're using, then Singapore, South Korea, Japan, and China and Finland. Yes. Destroy. Yeah. Destroy. Like, and then, well, like Albania, 97.6%. Um, let's see. I'm now I'm, Azerbaijan. <laughs> now he's down the rabbit hole. <laughs> Azerbaijan, 99.8%. Uh, wow, just, really? Bulgaria, 98.4% literacy rates. Uh, Colombia, 94.7%. Cuba, 99.7%. Though I'm not, oh, this is UNESCO. Okay, it's not the federal, it's not the government reporting because I'm always skeptical of uh, Cuba's of self-reported Cuba. numbers. Um, <laughs> Equatorial Guinea, 95.3. You know, uh, Greece is 97.7% literacy, but on this scale, they come out um, behind Mexico of this um, 
in Mexico has a literacy rate of 94.4%. So even though more people in Greece can read than in Mexico, according to the Central Connecticut State Survey, um, Mexico is uh, more literary. That does, I don't like this. I'm throwing this out. Methodology corner. Methodology <laughs> corner. Well, they're measuring what they're, I, mean, I don't know about their methodology, measuring what they're measuring. Like they may be right about what they're measuring, but I, I don't know. I, I don't like that. I don't like that at all. I'm very upset about this all of a sudden. I'm so sorry. Um, it's okay. It's not your fault. <laughs> I don't think. Well, I'll have to check true. to make sure it's not your fault. <laughs> um, let's talk about Harry's real quick. Harry's, you shave with blades. I don't know of other way of shaving. I guess you can get waxed. That's not really shaving, right? Well, you can get waxed. You can get lasered. Uh, I think that's the only... Those are only three hair removal... Well, I did see history picture... A Twitter account that I oh. follow was tweeting um, a picture from, I think, 1915 of some lumberjack shaving, and they were using axes. Well, that's so. a blade. Yes. Technically. So I mean, man up. I, I mean, <laughs> as my many years spent in the... Um, the uh, tree mining industry. <laughs> uh, I can tell you that's an axe is a blade. I guess there's some chemical like you can like melt, you know, basically dissolve the hair off your face. I know that you can do that too. But most of us, if we're looking for a hair removal device, we turn to a blade of some kind. And most of us who turn to a blade of some kind turn to a disposable blade of some kind. You know, not one of those, you know, basically you know get a leather strap and a straight razor. Um, and even in an, I mean. If you if you like an electronic, you know, if you like electronic razors, you know, one of those electric razors, God love you. I wish I wish I liked them, but they never get close enough. But for the most of us, we're trying to get the hair off our bodies on, in increments of time. We're looking as 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 a disposable blade. And since you've used that, you know how terrible it is to go out and buy a you know a uh, a regular brand name. I'm not going to even say their names. Screw them. I'm not going to say the names of their companies. You know, they spend money, they spend money on Super Bowl ads to try to convince you that seven blades and one on the back is like what you need. <laughs> and it has, has like a battery, you know, and, and it looks like something that, uh, uh, you know, you know, Tony Stark came up with. And they charge you like Tony Stark came up with it. And Harry's decided, screw all that. All people want is a good blade that's easy to get at a good price. And that's what Harry's does. They cut all the middlemen. They don't spend Super Bowl advertising. They don't put them in grocery stores so they have to pay CVS a percentage. You buy direct from them. They get their blades direct from their own factory. They're cutting out middlemen all along the way. So what you get is a great blade at a great price. You buy them online. You can sign up. They come at regular increments. However many blades you need over an increment of time, you can get. Go to Harry's dot com and you can get started um it's you know, about half what you're going to pay for the quote-unquote brand name blades at uh at the pharmacy at grocery store even if you go to costco i went to costco the other you know last i guess i was i was between my hairy shipments um when we had moved and hadn't found me and i i was thinking you know it won't be that bad at costco you know i can buy it was terrible it was horribly expensive and I was like, you know what? I'm just not, I, I can't do this anymore. So go to harrys.com and we can get $5 off your order if you use offer code, let me see, I'm trying to look, book. Offer code book, harrys.com, go right now. Um, one last thing before we end the show. Right now, for the month of March, we're giving away um, ebook versions of our book, Start Here. You wrote some chapters for, I wrote some chapters for, and what it is is we, we took authors that people always wanted to read. There's 25 chapters, and we gave you kind of a, 
you know, baby steps getting, not even baby steps, but here's the three short stories or books or whatever. Here's three things to read of that author to like give you a sense of who they are and then, you know, give you a taste of that's an author you want to sort of go do the whole full backlist read about. Um, and if you go to bookriot.com slash start here free, you can get a free ebook there. We ask you to try one of our newsletters. You don't like it, unsubscribe, no big deal. But we have a new books newsletter. We have a, a newsletter dedicated to YA. We have one that's the best of Book Riot um, three times a week. If you want to just see what we thought the best things we posted that those weeks are, uh, we have stuff about our store, stuff about our events. We have Book Riot deals where I personally pick um, a great ebook deal every day, and you get an email about that. Go try it out. Free ebook. Um, you can pick whether you want it for an, a Kindle or uh, basically all their devices. We'll give you a free download. So go check that out as well. Um, thanks so much to our three sponsors this week Harry's, Audible, and Burn Baby Burn by Meg Medina. Go check those things out. And uh, we got one more week of this. Wait, one more? Two more? Mm. Are you in Shinsky's? Are you, in, are you curled more. up in Shinsky's drawer again next week? Are you over there? Yeah, yeah. I think so. I don't remember. All I don't right. have a calendar in front of me. <laughs> <laughs> All she's right. just moved there. Yeah, okay. she's, she's gone. She's gone. She's never coming back. I wonder if the, liter- the literacy rates are probably a little higher now that she she's over there. Totally. In New Zealand. I asked her to steal me the giant golem from the New Zealand airport. Oh, so nice. We'll see how she manages that. <laughs> All right. Thanks so much, Amanda. And thanks, everyone, for listening. We'll talk to you soon. Bye.